Hey, I wanted to start off by asking you to pair up, uh, or three if that's convenient, and just share with the person next to you something that you're good at. It doesn't have to be like spectacular. It might be, I don't know, whittling or something like that, but something that you're good at. Just share, share with real quickly. All right, all right. So you've shared a little bit about something you're good at. You've heard something uh, from someone next to you, something they're good at. Anyone care to share? Uh, a brother up here is good at ice hockey. Uh, well, back in the day, right? Okay, back in the day. Okay, ice hockey. That, that was news to me. Anyone else? Something interesting? Oh, you guys are... You're a good grandma. Darn right you are. Oh. Uh, Everyone's being modest. Jens, what's your mom good at? Campfires? Yeah. <laughs> Putting out fires figuratively. I love it. We'll call her the cleaner. The wolf. Okay. <laughs> I'll stop right there. It feels good to be good at something, right? I mean, it, it's, it's nice to have some skills even if they're uh, somewhat silly or arbitrary. Being good at something, of course, can give you confidence. It can uh, give you a sense of having something to share with other people or having something to contribute to the world. You know, the gospel accounts portray Jesus at being good at things, like he's, a good, he's good at teaching, and he's, he's really good at healing people and telling stories. He's, he's good at prayer, to name a few. And prior to our story this evening, the one we're going to look at in Luke 8, Jesus has been preaching and teaching in multiple ways to multiple audiences. And while his disciples probably appreciated Jesus for these qualities, they may not have felt like they had much to offer their master while he was doing his thing. Jesus is doing all the things he's good at, and they're just kind of along for the ride. But then Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and he gave the command to go over to the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, to be exact. Let's see how that turns out. Okay, stand with me if you're able, and we're going to read Luke 8, 22 through 25. Now on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, Let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, Where's your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this who commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Who then is this, Lord, as we're confronted with you in this passage? Would you help us to see you for who you are? Would you help us to see who we are in light of you. Holy Spirit, we pray for your ministry of opening our ears, our minds, our hearts to the word of God this evening. Amen. You may be seated.
For a lot of the disciples, if they had gone through that exercise we went through in the beginning of the service, you know, they might have said something like fishing or sailing. If there was one thing many of the disciples were good at, it was operating a boat. Now, sure, Matthew was a tax collector, and we don't know about the work experience of some of the others, but Peter, Andrew, James, and John were all fishermen, all experienced in the water, and we know from the scriptures that they were part of a family business, that James and John had a father who was before them, so these guys grew up on the water and were experts. Jesus is tired after preaching, fell asleep, and after all, Jesus wasn't a boatman. He always had Peter or someone else to operate the boat whenever he was teaching or when they were traveling, so this wasn't Jesus' expertise, they thought. Buoyed with their confidence and their experience and their skill set and confidence in their vessel, this crew was in their element. They had knowledge and ability to succeed, and now it was just a matter of fact that they were going to get to the other side because they do it all the time. It was a matter of fact until it wasn't all of a sudden. As you know, the story goes, a fierce wind began to blow off the face of the high cliffs that surround the Sea of Galilee, and these salty sailors had experienced storms before. Ancient accounts tell us of the suddenness with which weather can change on the Sea of Galilee, and yet this storm was more than these men could handle. At that moment, they realized that they were hopelessly and likely tragically at the end of their capabilities. Their voyage started off so confidently, but when this storm came upon them, they found themselves powerless in their own abilities to deal with it. Have you ever been at the end of your proverbial rope in life? Ever been stretched beyond your own personal resources, whether it's physical financial, relational? Have you ever encountered a situation in life where you just couldn't get through it on your own? Those moments of struggle are often more than the experiences of frustration or fear. If we have eyes to see, those kinds of moments of struggle when we're at the end of our rope are moments of clarity. These moments remind us not only of our limitations but, or limitations in a specific area, but our limitations physically and spiritually and emotionally. See, you have, to, you have to appreciate the fact that the disciples saw more than just a storm in their way. Yes, these waves were massive and the wind was strong and it was more than they felt they could handle. But in the ancient world, people saw the sea as something to be feared. Like, I don't, I don't think we, we think about this because we live in, in Bellingham and we're all, or a lot of us at least, are water people and we're used to boating and to swimming and we like to recreate in the water. People in the ancient Near Eastern world did not like the big water, okay? Maybe in rivers, you know, they would go out or small lakes, but, but large seas like the Sea of Galilee or the Mediterranean for sure, they were places to be feared. Why? Because of chaos being represented by the sea. In pagan cultures, the sea was controlled by the gods. In Greek mythology, we have Poseidon. In the Roman pantheon, we have Neptune. And to many Semitic peoples, other than the Jews, it was controlled by Tiamat. All of these gods were believed to have, have bad tempers, and the state of the sea could tell you what the temper of the god was like. So a calm sea meant the gods were in a good mood, and as you set out, you might make a sacrifice or bring a good luck charm when crossing. Because when the sea was raging, 
you weren't just afraid because of the wind and the waves. You were afraid because a supernatural force was, for some reason, against you. The storm that rose up and terrified the disciples wasn't just terrifying because they could drown, because, but because maybe if their superstition got to them, they were in the hands of an angry God. In their fear, they did the right thing. They go to the master. Master, master, they get Jesus. And Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. Did you catch that? Jesus talks to the weather. It's kind of crazy. He talks to the weather, and the weather listens. This phenomena, by the way, that the weather listened to Jesus is a sermon in and of itself. Luke records the disciples' awe and wonder after this happens and, and ask Jesus or, or ask about Jesus the question, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? In Scripture, prophets like Moses and Elisha, leaders like Joshua, experience the weather and water behaving in supernatural ways because God intervenes or because they ask for God's help, but none of them ever just talked to the water and had it do, or to the wind and had it obey them. Who does that? Well, that's why I asked Sophia to read from Psalm 89, 1 through 14. In the ninth chapter of Psalm 89, you could also read Psalm 107 and others like it. We read that God, Yahweh, is the one who controls the water and controls the waves. Like I said, that's a whole other sermon. I'm not going to put my emphasis there. Just let that rattle around. Who is this? Who is this in the story? What I want to focus on is the question that Jesus asks. Where is your faith? It's a great question, but what does he mean? He probably doesn't mean, where did you put your faith in the sense of, can't you find it? Um, faith is not like something you can lose like a pair of sunglasses. Uh, if that were the case, Corey would be losing her faith all the time. Sorry, hon. She has like 16 pairs of sunglasses. <laughs> faith isn't an object that you can have one minute and then just lose the next. Does Jesus mean then, where is your faith? And the sense of Darth Vader, your lack of faith disturbs me right? Like, like scolding the disciples. Uh, in Matthew's version of this story, Jesus kind of leans in that direction. Uh, uh, he's, he calls the disciples men of little faith. But in, in this account, he doesn't appear to be angry with them, and he doesn't even necessarily expect much more from them than he gets. And you know, I, I just want to take a moment and say what a relief that is. Because for such a long time, I have heard this text taught, and I've read this text myself in such a way that it ended up being an indictment on my faith. Even if Jesus didn't mean it that way, there's always some kind of shame involved, like, like my faith wasn't strong enough or pure enough or present enough. But I don't think that that's what Jesus means here in this story. What if we simply took Jesus' question, instead of reading into it, at, just take it at face value? By the way, those of you in marital relationships or dating relationships, that would be wise as well. <laughs> Stop reading into stuff. Just what does it say at face value? Where is your faith? In the sense of in whom or in what are you putting your faith? It's a simple question. And I think to get a closer look at what Jesus is saying in that question, let's take a, a moment to go a little deeper in, in the realm of faith. What is faith? 
The Greek word is pistis. Can you say it? Pistis. Yep. Greek word is faith. It means like the dictionary meaning is trust or fidelity in a person or in a belief, reliability, confidence in someone or something. And even from that textbook definition, you can see that the word Jesus uses for faith is not the absence of reason. Faith is acting in a certain way because of certain beliefs that are based on certain knowledge. Faith, then, is not acting apart from reason. It's not acting apart from belief. The Greek word for faith that Jesus uses is not what much of our culture thinks about faith. You know what I'm saying? In our culture, faith is a descriptor for a thing which motivates certain people without or in spite of good, rigorous thinking. You ever seen rhetoric like that? I hear it all the time. I read it all the time. Uh, The media, for example, uses terms like faith groups to describe religious communities like churches and synagogues or mosques. And when described in this way, the implicit message is that the faith community is different from the secular, rational society. One either functions on faith or one functions on facts. And that's kind of how we've split it up in our cultural reasoning. And with many people I know out in the community, uh, and people you likely encounter on a regular basis, this is the standard view. Uh, there is faith, and then there's facts, and the two don't go together. Like, they're like oil and water. But this is clearly a false and misleading dichotomy. Faith as described from the biblical perspective is solidly based on facts, on, on history, and on relationship. Which, by the way, that is a great reason to come to worship and to participate in the story of God on a regular basis, to remember the history and the story of God, to participate in the sacraments, to, to, to build a foundation of belief on, in your Bible study, if that's what you're, you're into, or, or to studying the scriptures on your own, or to continuing your education. God reveals himself to Abraham, and Abraham has faith that the God who revealed himself will lead him well. As their relationship grows, so does Abraham's faith. And most telling is the fact that when Abraham's faith fails, God's faithfulness prevails. This is one of the facts about God's character that leads us to believe he's a good God. And when life is hard and storms rise up and our senses find it hard to see that God is good in the moment, our faith helps us to trust when our beliefs fail us. I could go on and on and on, and many philosophers and scholars have. If you're interested in this subject, talk to Ryan Wasserman, talk to me, we'll point you in good directions. But what I want to say is that the Christian faith is based on rigorous thinking, historical warrant, and centuries of believers who all share a common experience, whether it's the strangely warmed heart or the freedom of forgiveness of sin or the life in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is a bond that is real, as real as death and taxes, and thankfully better than both of those things put together. Now, If you're tracking with me, maybe you're thinking, ah, that's where your argument breaks down. A shared experience. 
See, people of faith refer to a subjective experience, whereas right thinking, reasonable people only believe in things that are scientifically proven. Modern people in the scientific age simply can't believe in miracles or the Bible on faith. So goes the rhetoric. But that line of thinking is riddled with problems, and I'm just going to talk about a few of them. For starters, all people practice faith. Even the most hardened critic against classic faith has the most, and the most committed to scientific process is practicing faith. How? Because it's impossible to provide empirical proof for the position that empirical verification of every belief is both possible or preferable to any other way of knowing truth. Inconceivable, right? <laughs> Second, empirical reasoning, that means no, coming to know things with our senses, is by itself not necessarily accurate. Maybe you've noticed that if you've ever uh, had an argument with someone, um, maybe a spouse in particular, about the events of a certain thing that happened, and you remember it one way, and they remember it another way, and somebody's got to be right, it's usually you're both wrong <laughs> in some way, shape, or form, right? <laughs> Another way of saying this is that there's no true, no true objectivity from a human perspective. You and every other person in the world has a context, a perspective, a filter. Your age, your race, your culture, your gender, your socioeconomic status, your physical health, your biochemical makeup, traumatic experiences, family history, religious or non-religious upbringing, and many other factors all influence how you interpret what your senses take in. As Tim Keller notes, we take our very reality on faith and we are defensively dismissive of those who question those beliefs. And the reason is we can't, because we really can't prove empirically why we have those beliefs. It threatens us. Threatens us. Third, the typical secular humanist holds to the belief in a closed universe where there is a finite amount of energy, resources, possibilities, and firm laws of physics and nature. Uh, for this person, miracles, like many described in the Bible, simply cannot be possible. But where do we get the idea, and where can we prove that the universe is closed, that forces beyond what we empirically quantify cannot and do not intervene, in, intervene into the sphere of reality? Where do we get the idea that God can't exist or act upon us in real time and space? It's not a scientific stance when you think about it. It's a philosophical one. It is the belief that is held by faith by those who say they cannot trust in faith. Okay. Sorry, this is a little more uh, heady. Some of you are like, this is so fun, and some of you are like, move on, please. I haven't even touched on the realm of ethics or epistemology, but I will stop here and sum up what I've been rambling on about. Faith is trust, and all people have faith, and therefore humanity, every one of us, is a faith community. Christian faith is not opposed to science or reason. In fact, science as we know it is birthed out of a cultural womb shaped by Christianity. Christian faith is not anti-historical. It is based on history and the realities of creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, death, and resurrection, and the Spirit-filled church. 
It is a faith in God who has a track record of doing really amazing things. So here's my stab at faith after reading this story and thinking through it a bit. Faith is the forward movement of a life based on belief, even when we fail to believe. Faith is the forward movement of life based on belief, even when our beliefs fail us. That's what faith is. Let me illustrate by a story I've told before. In 1996, I was in a horrific storm at sea. I was stationed upon a 110-foot Coast Guard cutter, and my assignment on that ship was auxiliary engineer, and then I advanced to become the main propulsion engineer. What I mean by saying those two things is that I knew the ship inside and out. She was powered by two Paxman Valenta 16-cylinder engines that produced each one 2,880 horsepower. This ship had a range of 1,800 miles, a top speed of over 30 knots, a hull design rated to withstand 90-knot winds and 50-foot seas. I believed in the capabilities of my ship on paper. Those were the specs. But my beliefs were tested on a dark winter night when we were on patrol and stopped for the night in Nia Bay, Washington, a protected inlet just before the Strait of Juan de Fuca meets the Pacific Ocean. The winds were picking up into gale force power, and occasionally the gusts inside Nia Bay, a protected harbor, were reaching 50-plus knots. Up to that point, I was confident in my ship and my shipmates, but I had not been truly scared because of the weather before like I was about to be. We got a call of a vessel in distress off the Pacific Ocean, off of the area near Quileute River. We rounded the point of Washington, headed out into the Pacific, where we were met by swells, which means the the average size of the wave was 30 feet tall. The wind was howling, the sea was frothing white on top of these midnight blue rollers 30 feet high. And I went up to the bridge to give a report to the captain. The windows on the bridge, the highest point of the inside of the ship, stand at 21 feet above the waterline. And the waves at times, when they would break above the swell, were 10 feet taller than the bridge windows. The 110-foot ship that housed 15 of my shipmates sporting all of 5,000 horsepower all of a sudden felt like a toy, and I was scared. And almost everyone was horribly sick. And at that point, I didn't believe that this ship, which was so capable on paper, could actually make it through this storm. I really didn't believe it. I had believed it, and then my belief began to fail me. I didn't believe that we could take a wave just the wrong way and survive it. And I didn't believe that the person piloting the ship would be perfect because that's what it would take to get through this. But there was one guy who didn't seem frightened. He was intense in his concentration, but he wasn't anxious. Now, I was only 21 years old at the time, and this guy had more sea time than I had lifetime. He was what you call in the service salty. And when I saw his face and his control of the situation, I was no longer afraid. I was concerned. (laughs) But somehow I had faith that defied my beliefs that we would be okay. 
you'll notice that my faith in that moment was not a fairy tale thing based on something other than reason. It wasn't wishful thinking. Faith was based on beliefs, and it takes over for belief when our beliefs fail us. More on that in a moment. For now, let's return to the story. Jesus asked these disciples, where is your faith? Before the storm, it would be fair to say that Peter and his salty friends had put their faith in themselves and in their integrity of the vessel. Uh, Their skill and experience as sailors gave them confidence that that would likely uh, made them imagine their safety and that this crossing would be uneventful. And even if the weather picked up, they'd seen it all before. They were in control. But when they met something bigger than themselves, they were suddenly found out. Have you ever been found out? Some, some, for some of us, that's our biggest fear, that we'll be found out. Let me tell you something. Being found out by Jesus is freedom. And actually, since Jesus already knows all things, I might word it like this. Finding out that you've been found out all along by Jesus is freeing. When you realize that the mess you are in is bigger than the faith is bigger than your faith. Jesus asks, where is your faith? When you realize that the mess you're in is bigger than your ability to control, Jesus just asks, where's your faith? When you realize the sin you thought you were hiding and controlling so well is all of a sudden your master, Jesus asks, Where is your faith? He implies your ability to manage your sin is not worthy of faith. It's left you wanting. It's found you out. This is an invitation to put your faith in Jesus, to trust him to forgive and to cleanse you and to heal you. And when you're suffering a loss and you are so angry at God, so unable to believe And many of us have been there, many of us will be there at some point because this world is hard. When you're unable to believe, Jesus says, where's your faith? Don't put your faith in your faith. Put your faith in me. Keep showing up. When you feel dry, when you're not engaged, keep showing up. When you're sitting in church or your Bible study and you find yourself in a desert place, when you feel like a fraud and you haven't heard a word from God in so long, you wonder if he's really real at all. Hear Jesus say, where's your faith? It's an invitation to press in and not pull away, to trust that because he has spoken in the past, because he's acted before, he's just as real now, even though you can't feel him or emotionally experience him like you once did. Where's your faith? The people in the Bible and the people in life who come to trust Jesus most who come to trust him most fully, are often the ones that have the least to lose. Men in a boat who are about to die. A man possessed by a legion of demons. Jairus, the leader of a synagogue whose daughter, 12 years old, is about to die. The unnamed woman 
who had been hemorrhaging, unable to be healed for 12 years, who spent every penny on every quack doctor she could find, the ones who are at the end of their physical, emotional, financial, and relational resources, the ones who know their poverty, they are the ones who come to realize that Jesus alone is worthy of faith. And I think that Luke gives us this story in hopes that it would encourage those of us who are suffering. And he also gives it to those of us who are comfortable in our self-faith, in our wealth, in our social connections, in our, let's be honest, our veneer of control, and in our delusion of competence to navigate this world and all of its circumstances. To say, you're found out today, and that's a good thing. That's about as real a place as you could be. Where's your faith? Lord, thank you for finding us out. And thank you for a word like this from your servant, Luke. That reveals to us that we have been found out. Some of us know that full well today. Some are coming here raw and wounded. Desperate. Desperate for you, Lord. And I pray that you would release faith by the power of your spirit. Faith to believe that you are the savior, that you are the forgiver even for them, even for me. That you're the author of new life. That you can make all things new. And Lord, I thank you for this word for those who are comfortable. For this reality that we're found out. That even though things seem to be going smoothly and that we've got it on cruise control and we've pretty much got this without your help, thank you very much. We're just a stumble and a fall away from destitution, from tragedy, from being found out by others. Lord, give us courage to choose you now. To invite you even into those places of our strength. To invite you into our workplaces, into our relationships, into our finances, into the lifestyles that we choose to live. Be the Lord over these things. Release faith by the power of your spirit. It changes the way we see the world, Lord. I pray for a heart transplant, Lord Jesus. That you would help us to love the things you love and to mourn the things you mourn and to fight against injustice and the things you would have us fight against. We thank you, Lord, that you are good and gracious, that you give us these words because you have our best in mind, that this passage and your whole gospel is good news. You are the God of life. Amen.